Hi, welcome to This Undefined, the podcast that breaks down the social context of what you heard from what you believe. And up next in this commentary series, we are getting into how we recover. Creating this part of the podcast was a must, let me tell you. This building block for wellness, in my opinion, is the underutilized and overcomplicated one because of how subjective it can be depending on the results each person wants to gain. The ability to take care of ourselves is an act that takes time and intention. When it comes to taking recovery into our own hands, it's time that we commonly reserve for only moments of luxury or pain and a few other random reasons in between. This may be mostly due to how much time we can commit to our bodies based on our own priorities, which is valid to each their own. Until again, we reserve for when something goes wrong or we're on vacation. So by that standard, you see how we recover can kind of take a backseat in relation to topics surrounding health. Not to mention sometimes our threshold for how much stress or pain we think we can handle far exceeds what we actually can support. So keeping that in mind, I knew I wanted to shift the perspective on how we have conversations about self-care and name this segment for the podcast, Recover. To me, recovering is the how to accomplishing the why, which I expand on in the Create series that I have for the podcast. When reflecting back on my own professional experience with health and wellness, I found it important to think of all the tools and resources available to heal ourselves and what they all had in common with each other. Saunas, massages, food, medicine, therapy, spirituality, technology, sleep, the list is eclectic and long. But the one thing they all require is our intention. While time is arguably the most influential measurement for change, when it comes to recovery, intention may be the more impactful process to leverage to create change. I'll elaborate more on this later. But as a fitness practitioner, we discuss with clients about the behaviors they have not just within controlled environments like the gym, but most importantly, the behaviors they can encounter outside of their time with us. How we choose to recover can have a variety of paths that range in meaning and interpretation, especially in the health and fitness world. From physical rehabilitation to detox, sleep, nutrition, you can pretty much make anything become a source of recovery if it gets you to heal in some kind of way. This includes mentally, physically, emotionally, or physiologically. This was another reason I found it more interesting to encompass all of these definitions of care into the actionable word recover, a verb that causes you to lead with effort. If you think about it, how we recover from an injury, failure, setback, loss, exercise, you name it. It's what really leads someone into a healthy path towards personal growth and development. So when listening to our guests, think about how taking care of what we need is defined by what we want to make us feel better consistently. The guests I had on for this season's Recover series provide perspectives that come from traditional, experimental, educational, and practical knowledge. I may be biased, but I think this series is the most influential topic to get people to live longer, healthier lives. Because what's life if you don't know how to recover from it? So take a break and listen to some of the highlights from this season's guests. And let me tell you, there was a lot I didn't get to put on this episode. So if anything resonates with you, be sure to check out the full episodes on the podcast. But for now, let's dive in. This is Commentary Undefined on the Recover Series.
For the first episode of this series, I wanted to start off with the most practical tool at our disposal, our breath. Breathwork practices have become popular again over the last decade, this time due to the emerging research highlighting the many benefits proper breathing techniques can have on one's health and performance. What I liked most about my conversation with breathwork practitioner Shireen Youssef was how effectively she integrates physiology and philosophy. There are so many associations we can make with how stress affects our nervous system and all of its associating parts, which include our most emotional responses as well. As an electrical engineer, she understands that data is nothing without a human interpretation. How we take what we learn in one area of interest, specifically in methodology, and apply it to other parts of our life is a skill I've always found immensely valuable in teaching anyone I encounter. In this instance, take the effect breath has on the nervous system due to the stressors we encounter throughout life. Stress, as we all know, is a natural part of life many people avoid or limit, and the resistance we decide to apply against it can be highlighted by how well we use or not use our breath to improve our state of body and mind. In this segment, Shireen breaks down the effects of what exactly happens when we decide to follow breath through its entire process, both inside and out. Most people look at breath work as a parasympathetic activity, which is the activity that leads to relaxation, your rest or digest, feed or breathe in your nervous system, right? And what I love about the Wim Hof method is that it is actually a combination of both activation of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Because for a, uh, for a human being to be like a healthy human, healthy, happy human being, they should actually have equal activation of their sympathetic and their parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And most of us don't have that. Most of us lead life that we consider very stressful, but the reality is we're stressing over things that are not worth stressing about. Mm -hmm. So... It's not that you are leading stressful lives. It's that you're getting stressed out about things you shouldn't be getting oh, stressed out. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, so it's like yeah, people true. are stressing out about the weather, about yes. traffic, about yeah. an argument in their relationship. And it's yeah. like, these are not things that you should be flaring up on, right? Yeah. Like when your wife or your spouse That's walks true. in into your room, if your, your blood starts boiling, you've got bigger issues, right? Mm, so yeah. like that needs to happen if you see a man trying to kill your child, mm -hmm. right? Or if you, like, that's when yes. that reaction should come, right? That's because true. anger and frustration, these are not, we did not have emotions. Let me, let me rephrase that. Emotions are important, mm -hmm. right? Because emotions are truly what drives us to act. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you think about it, yeah. okay? So if I were to say, oh, anger is a bad emotion, why do we have anger? Right. If we truly believe that we are perfect as we are and we were made yeah. in a perfect fashion, then why were we given anger? Yeah. Right. Because, yes, anger does make sense if you are in a situation which is unjust mm -hmm. when you're trying to fight for justice. Then, yes, anger is a very qualifiable emotion to have. Mm -hmm. But it's not qualifiable if your significant other is sitting and telling you something that's upsetting them about um, the way you acted with them last night. Mm -hmm. It's not a justifiable emotion, right? Yeah. That sounds like you're just a bad listener and you need to work mm -hmm. on your listening skills, yeah. right? So, <laughs> sorry, I'm just being very honest. Okay. No, you're right, so, though. That is true. That is true. So what we're really struggling with is a incorrect calibration of emotional usage. That's mm -hmm. what's happening in our society right now. It's not that we need to be less angry or any of those things. It needs to be, I need to be angry when the time's right to be angry. Yeah. 
yeah. right? And so breath work helps with recalibration of your stress gauge in your mm-hmm. body, right? So what that means is, and like I said, most of us, because we are constantly in the sympathetic zone, which we consider fight or flight, we're always thinking, oh, I need to do relaxing breath methods. I need to do relaxing breath methods. And I'm like, no, you need to actually work on your sympathetic side too because your sympathetic side is getting activated way too easily. So by doing stuff like the Wim Hof method, by going into ice baths, what you're doing is recalibrating the stress gauge within your brain to only truly feel the strong emotions when something strong is happening. So that's, I would say like that is probably one of the most fundamental, like the nervous system activation, okay? Which immediately makes an impact on your emotions, which again, makes an immediate impact on your level of happiness. The second one would be talking about happiness, right? Like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, like doing the Wim Hof method gives you a shot. I call it a dose of happiness every single time you do it, right? You have a 200%, um, I believe it's 200%, increase in norepinephrine in your blood. And it's like, you look at anybody. I don't know if you have watched people come out of an ice bath. People are just happy. They've got a smile on their face, right? Like even when they're doing breath work, it's like they might go through a lot of emotions, but five minutes after breath work, they just look happy. They're relaxed. They're like more grounded, more engaged, you know? Yeah. And so like... You just watch people after breath work or ice baths and it's like happiness just exuding out of them, right? They, they can't even help it sometimes. They're just kind of like, I can't help it. I feel great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about the nervous system. We've talked about levels of happiness. Then you start talking about the circulatory system, right? Yeah. So like in your circulatory system, your cells in your heart, like your breath rate makes a direct impact on your heart rate, right? Like think about it when you're resting you want your heart rate to be low when you're running your heart rate would be high if you think about your breath rate chances are your breath rate is also doing exactly the same thing so if you tap into your breath rate you're actually making an impact on your heart rate as well and through the change of the ratio of oxygen to carbon dioxide in the body you're actually changing the way the cells diffuse and actually in um, absorb oxygen into it as well Same thing with the ice. When you get into the ice, you have constriction and dilation, right? And it's the same mechanism where the cells are working. They're becoming stronger. And by doing that, you're just becoming a more resilient human being on the inside, not just on the outside, right? Because these practices, I consider them preventative practices, right? What does that mean? It's like, imagine you are in the army or the navy, You don't start training the day we call war. You've Mm -hmm. been training so that when the day of war is called, you are ready. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Wim Hof Method or most of the breathwork practices are doing is it's getting you ready for the day when you will be called to be in a zone that is outside of your comfort zone. That's why it's so important to do the work every day. I mean, how many people called me up after they got COVID and they said, Shreen, can you teach me the Wim Hof method? And I was like, sure, I can teach you the Wim Hof method, but you should have been doing the work every day so that when you did get it, you know, the impact would probably have, there would have been some difference, right? Because you're constantly working on your immune system as well. So it's that change in your perspective. These methods, we're doing it so that we are preparing ourselves for that rainy day. 
And so this is where I think it is really important to recognize the difference between feeling and emotional intelligence. There is a huge difference between this doesn't feel right, this doesn't feel wrong, because feelings are fleeting. Feelings come and go. Okay? People who make decisions based on feelings will pretty much go up and down a lot in their lives, right? But when you actually are engaged in your emotional intelligence, then you're tapped into your feelings. So like how I explain it is like, imagine your feeling is kind of like your uh, hair standing up on the back of your neck or you feel your heart racing or your palms become sweaty, right? These are feelings, okay? From there, it can lead to an emotion. It can lead to excitement. It can lead to happiness. It can lead to sadness. It can lead to frustration. It can lead to anger, mm-hmm. right? Through breath work, you can actually get into this process of just between the feeling and the emotion, where the feeling when it comes, when I'm really tapped into my breath work. So when I say breath work for me, remember, it's something that I do all the time. So I'm so engaged because I'm doing it all the time. I'm so aware of when the feelings pop up, I'm able to immediately tap into it and I immediately am aware where is it coming from? Is it because a cute guy walked into the into the, the door? Mm-hmm. Or is it because something is telling me I need to get out of here? Or is it that I don't feel this is the place I need to be in? That comes from data gathering mm-hmm. within that split second, right? Yeah. And so like when you are so aware of your feelings, you're able to gather data a lot faster. When you gather data a lot faster, you're able to process a lot faster to the fact mm-hmm. that the more you do this, you're able to get to such a high level of emotional management, even before the emotion comes out, you get to decide if this emotion makes sense or not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so like, what I'm talking about right now is mastery. Yes. Right? This yeah. is mastery. Yeah. And this is what I am always trying to bring forth to my students. Yeah. Right? Because I'm always like, don't sell yourself short. Mm-hmm. This is the life you can lead. Mm-hmm. Right? So go all the way. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I think most people don't even realize they can even do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like when you start going into those zones, then it's very easy. It's like black and white. There is no gray anymore. Mm-hmm. It's very clear at that point. Is that emotion necessary? Not not necessary. Throw it out. It requires you to do work. It requires you to be disciplined. And right. And so like most of the people who are consistently doing it is primarily people who are actually very sick. So they're tired of taking medications and they're tired of the side effects of the medications that they're taking. Or they're people who are trying to become world-class in something, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's their performance enhancement as a CEO or an athlete, or, you know, there are very few people in that middle-class zone that recognizes breathwork helps me with sleep. Breathwork helps me with reducing my anxiety. Breathwork helps me with getting rid of all of my autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. Help, it helps me get rid of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, helps me get rid of diabetes, helps me get rid of cancer, helps me get rid of like all of these things that most people are like immediately think of doctors. I have a lot of respect for doctors, both my brother and my father are doctors. Um, I believe doctors have a very important role in our society, but their job is just that, to treat the sick. It's not, not necessarily to guide the sick from not getting sick again, right? And so like, that process comes down to recognizing I need to make healthy choices in my life. And a huge choice you can make is by being tapped into your breath 
all the time, right? So yeah, you can do Wim Hof method, you can do Buteyko method. But like when you start looking at breath work as like a method, then you're looking at it like you would look at a workout in a gym or a movie you're going to watch. It's something that you need to set time aside for. That's why breath work is so powerful because you don't have to set aside any time for it. You can do it when you're brushing your teeth. You can do it when you're on the potty. You know, like you're basically can do it anytime you want. You can do it when you're driving. You can do it when you're grocery shopping. You can do it when you're walking the dog. You can link it up to any activity you're doing. And so I've been, that's also another thing I've been working on is trying to get people to stop looking at breath work as an activity that they're doing and start looking at it as what I'm doing all the time. I'm literally able to tap into my breath any time of the day and I can get the aspects, the positive aspects of it at any point during the day. Shireen specifically grounds the conversation around breath as an entry into many aspects of life to which we can use as a reminder of our innate resilience. After understanding breath as a practice, we can then move outwards into how it relates to our experiences with control. Breathwork has the ability to change any state of well-being depending on our circumstance. Just look at how our breath rate can change based on emotional or physical demands from the environments we find ourselves in. Throughout the entire podcast episode, there were many references Shireen and I shared on how breathwork can lead to paradigm shifts surrounding our well-being, but only by being consistent in the practice. Launching the series with this topic provided a clear starting point that I think could give insight as to how we take care and understand ourselves, one breath at a time. When you start doing breath work, or like any practice that requires to bring about mind-body alignment, then you really understand what it feels to truly tap into the intelligence of both the mind and the body. And then it's like you're a superhuman. You're not only going off of the intelligence of your mind anymore, which is what we as a society runs off of, but the intelligence of the body, you walk into a situation, you just know what you have to do. Like I always say this to people, CEOs of large companies, there's no way they have all the information before they have to go with something. They better have good mind-body relationship, right? Definitely. Yeah, I have some clients where like they're in those type of situations and when they're in the gym, I see like a different side of them that makes me sort of ask them like how come like in a courtroom you can really kind of have a presence there and then here you have to deadlifting it's kind of freaking you out a little bit. That's why I love what I do with training and even massage. It gives that awareness for people to be like the characteristics you use in your career, in your life, with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones. It's, it's the same when you're when it's you and your body and yeah. you're putting your body through different adaptations in the gym. And so the same kind of hoops you go through to try to get through that, you can do that here in yes. the gym, right? Or yes. in the massage or like notice. It's all about awareness and, and, and being present in that moment. And back to the breath, that kind of anchors everyone. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I think breath work is so basic. Yeah. Because like I said, you do it all the time. Yeah. And so you really... When you start tapping into your breath, you can essentially tap into any meeting, any relationship, any situation, whether you're on a basketball court or whether you're on the football field or whether you're in a church or whether you're in this in a CEO's office. Mm-hmm. It's like by tapping into your breath work, you can immediately change who you are in that moment. And so I call that emotional mastery, right? Yeah. Because you're so tied in, you're so plugged in into that moment, you can be exactly what you need to be 
for 100% optimal performance. Mm -hmm. And I would say the first time I got into a practice that kept the hole filled for a prolonged period of time was actually breath work. So that was probably the first time that, you know, I started noticing things, right? I started noticing connections. I started noticing, you know, the trees around me, the birds around me, the flowers around me. Like, I used to notice them, but I started noticing them in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I started noticing, like, I realized breathwork kind of made me realize how judgmental I was. Because even though I was living in all these different countries, I always still saw differences. Right. I would look mm. at people and I'd be like, oh, you don't know what it's like, you know, mm. being a Muslim girl growing up in this environment. Or I would look at somebody and I'd be like, man, like, you don't know what it was like to live in this situation or that situation. Or you don't know what it was like to work in a country like China where I couldn't even speak Chinese. You know, like yeah. that was always the background dialogue was the need for me to establish that I was different. Mm. And I think the more breathwork came into my life the more I started seeing how we're all not different, how we're all really going through the same thing, but we're all speaking a different language, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so like, I think the more I started doing breath work, the more I started recognizing like, it doesn't matter who you are, you have to breathe. Mm-hmm. I have to breathe too. Yeah. You have lungs, I have lungs. You have a heart, I have a heart. And so instead of seeing the differences more, I started seeing the similarities more. And I think that truly was where I started getting more and more into this whole zone of we aren't different, we're all connected, we're all together. And like I started experiencing others' pain, others' happiness. Like I don't think I really ever recognized how similar happiness is for all of us. Yeah. You know, and I, that's one of the things I do in my workshops is talk about happiness a lot, you know, and nobody ever has the same definition for happiness. No, but then I always break it down. And I always explain to people, happiness is tied to your desires. And that's it. And so if you control what you desire, or you know what you desire, then being in a state of happiness is very easy. When it comes to self-care education, completing a full assessment of a particular practice will ultimately end with adapting those skills into a specific goal. Nathan's journey as a functional range practitioner is an example of how that process can provide efficiency when applying recovery methods into our lives. A mindful practitioner knows how to communicate and adapt their skill set depending on their audience. This shift in conversation surrounding recovery was crucial to highlight because when it comes to healthy movement, it is not often talked about with a self-care perspective. Our bodies can take the brunt of what we do or don't do to take care of it, and because of that, they can store unconscious emotions we never considered. This is why moving our body through its full range of motions can sometimes be the proper method to unlock the parts of us we may have forgotten or we're not fully aware could exist. Similarly, registered dietitian Taylor Stolt further expands on the idea of a well-balanced education around our body with food as her source of insight. She goes on to describe the educational hurdles she faced when choosing how to talk about food to her clients. But what became more impactful to the philosophy and her approach was how her own experience with health and food was the true source of inspiration to help people understand their relationship with food. What I love about both Taylor and Nathan's methodology is how their personal experience might have sparked their interest in their perspective field, but their process to understanding that information is how they educate each person about their own health journey. 
that practice was just like the gift that keeps on giving for me. And now that I've completed the entire thing, I've fine tuned throughout the whole process. And it's, uh, now I'm figuring out how to kind of make it my own instead of following the rules that were given. Now I'm reworking my own rules based off my own clientele. Cause there's no one way to do anything. No, yeah. These guys teach a very, very specific practice and specific way of doing things based off their own principles. And it, it makes sense if we were to go into the nitty gritty of it and really talk about the whys behind it. But there's better, there's, there's better ways of doing things for certain populations. And most populations don't need to be ultra specialized the way that I, I was taught for the last few months or the last couple of years. So now I'm realizing like we can get these same type of results faster using similar techniques, um, but it doesn't need to be as nitty gritty and it's just as effective. So just the learning and the trial and error and thank God I take good notes with my clients because I'm able to look back on things I did yeah. a year ago and be like, why did I spend 45 minutes trying to just stretch somebody's shoulder? And now I can do the same thing in three minutes and then spend 40 minutes training that shoulder and I can get the exact same output that I want. Yeah. So it's just, it's a, it's been a, it's a fun process, but I, I had to go through all six levels of this before I could get to the point to where you, I could honestly say, you know what, I can do this better, or this yeah. can be done better, or this can be simplified. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, there's this, there's an art to teaching that. Right. So I think it, you don't understand it until you go through it all the way, because what mm -hmm. happens is, you know, you go and these instructors are showing you the, the methods of what, what to do but they're, they're not showing you like the application in real life, right? So they're just giving you like, this is, the, this is the map. But then when you go out in the real world, it's not gonna look like how we're presenting it, but we're giving you those tools so that you can then critically think and help each person individually. And that takes other things in your toolbox of what you've done aside from that. And when you kind of understand that is when you sort of come out at the end, and like what you're doing now, finding your way of, of specializing even more what you're, your population is, is coming to you for. Right. The way I'm using that now is it, everything for the last couple of years, up until about probably about six months ago, not even that actually, probably up until about four months ago, everything I was doing was entirely based around this joint priority protocol. Everything was, how do I mobilize the joint? How do I increase this rotational capacity of the joint? Um, how do I get flexibility in the tissue? So that way there's no early restrictions in the joint. And that was all I was doing. But now in just the last few months, it's evolved into a hybrid approach of this nitty gritty joint function. And I've learned that we can add in some traditional, more traditional strength training methods, just focusing on range of motion. And we can get the exact same results, if not faster, because we're putting more demand on the central nervous system. So we're getting, we're just able to check more boxes uh, with our training. And that's, that's kind of where I'm at now from pulling from this super, super specialized nitty gritty approach with FRC only to evolving it to where the joint is still priority. But now we're doing a lot more of this bigger movement, trying to get the human to be a better human instead of just the joint to be a better joint. It's funny because uh, this is a different aspect of mental health, if you think about it. Like, uh, and it's, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a way to kind of talk about it. I, I, 
because there's something there, like everything goes back to the brain. Brain has a lot right. of job, a lot of jobs. Right. So right now everyone has like a mental health conversation, but talking about this type of mental health for uh, the nervous system, that's really important because that's like you moving. And just, just to piggyback on that, um, cause you're totally right. I have, uh, I've, the longer I do this stuff, especially this body awareness training, this range of motion training, teaching people to understand and communicate with their body, the feedback I've gotten from some people from the emotional release side of things, from the, ther- the mental therapy side of things is pretty incredible. Um, fitness has always been my outlet. It's always been something that I do to keep myself balanced, to keep myself sane, to keep me happy, whatever you want to call it. But I have a couple of clients that I've worked with recently who've told me that they come in for a session and I teach them how to find a new piece of their rib cage via breath work and then via rotation of the spine. And they go home and they cry for hours. Mm. And it's like, they're like, I don't know what you did to me, but you released something that I haven't felt in a long, long time. And um, there's a, there's a book, I can't remember who it's written by, but it's called the body keeps the score. Um, And it talks about, basically how our bodies store trauma in different ways. A lot of us store stress and trauma physically, whether we give it the credit or not, that that's actually what's going on. Um, like personally, I, when I get really, really stressed, I actually, I store stress in my neck and in my legs. Um, I've recently, the legs thing has become much more present to me. Um, but when I do certain activities that involve loosening my neck or just becoming more in tune with how I'm utilizing the musculature in my neck or my legs, my whole, my spirit is lighter. My energy is, is cleaner. I can move through the day better. I feel like a happier person. And I think people need to understand that movement is medicine. Like I know that that verbiage gets thrown around a lot, but for some of us, movement is, is therapy, like is our emotional therapy. It is our counselor, whatever you want to think of it as. Um, and it's powerful to get in tune with your body and, and become one with it. Yeah. It really, really is. So I wanted you to talk about how much home care is a part of what you do and that conversation with your client. Home care, you mean like homework, like what they do yes. at home? So, I mean, usually with the clientele that I see, I used to give them like a very extensive at home program that I wanted them to do, mm-hmm. uh, only to be constantly disappointed at people's <laughs> ability to do homework. Um, so that's so the case across now, the board too, though. <laughs> yeah. So now what I do is I will typically give somebody two to three things. Um, and that's, that's usually it. And they're big ticket items. Um, and I just want somebody to, cause what we do, whether we think about it or not as a coach, whether your niche is nutrition, strength training, or mobility, or, you know, an integrated therapy, like I do, um, we're teaching people to change their behaviors in some way, shape or form. So I only give people a little nugget that they can bite off of every day or on their off days and be sure they can execute properly. Um, so I don't, I mean, it's not a whole lot of, it's not anything crazy, but I want people to, you know, get used to moving their hip around every day to some level. Um, especially if someone's got something nasty going on, like if, if not for the range of motion, just for the secretion of the synovial fluid of a joint, like just so they can understand that, that, that the, 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 the rationale behind it. 
movement is going to lubricate the stuff that, that is where the movement takes place. So if I can get you to understand that some movement somewhere will make that piece move better, that's my goal. And I will make that as simplified as I need to, to get somebody to, to take that bait and bite onto it. Um, Cause I used to just give people an arsenal of stuff and they'd be like, dude, it takes me forever to go through this. I don't want to do it. Like blah, blah, blah. And as I've dumbed things down and made it easier, the buy-in is higher and people do their homework better and they feel better because they only have to master one skill instead of trying to master a whole program. And I, I just, I, I think that's something people need to remember when it comes to not just mobility, not just recovery, but train, just life in general, like one thing at a time, master one thing at a time and just let that become a part of your, your, your day, your process, whatever, and just reap the benefits of it. A lot of the times with my clients, I speak to them about, you know, your, your body's on your side. So it's yeah, going to yeah. do everything for you. And right. so a lot of the things that um, we do to our bodies, we don't give it the time to recover and do what it's supposed to do. So how do you feel food can be that source to recover and replenish? Yeah, um, I've run track in uh, college. And so I've done some college athletics and I know how it impacts exercise performance. But I think also in this day and age when everyone is so stressed, we not only have to think about recovery from physical stressors, but also recovery from like emotional and mental stressors too, mm -hmm. because that still, there's some physiological processes that are happening when cortisol levels go up that stress hormone. And so our diet's not only helping us recover from physical strain in exercise, but also the really difficult things that a lot of us are facing right now. I think a lot of people don't realize that hormones can be affected by the food that they eat. Mm -hmm. So in just bringing that up and, and letting them know that there is a connection there and some clients are very trusting and they just take my word for it. But sometimes <laughs> I'll actually put, I always write really detailed session notes for clients. So anytime I recommend something, I will write out, you know, why and how to implement it. But sometimes I'll actually link some research studies because some people are like, I want to see the evidence. So mm. I'll link some research studies and show them, you know, this is how like estrogen met detoxification and um, estrogen metabolism is affected by like X, Y, and Z food. Mm. And they appreciate that and find it really interesting. When you are a healthcare practitioner, a lot of people encourage you to niche in one thing. So the two things that I specialize in are gut health and hormones. Okay. But when you're taking a functional medicine approach, I'm still addressing other things. And so people have asked me, why don't you niche in just gut health or just hormones? But there is such a connection there. And oftentimes when a client comes to me or a potential client and they tell me they just have a gut issue or they just have a hormone issue, once we really dig in and I ask them more about their current symptoms um, and I ask them about their health history and we do lab work and we really dig in, there is typically an issue with both. So I'm like, I can't just specialize in one. I, I really need to specialize in both. And thankfully I have experience in both because those are two of my really, really, really big issues yeah. um, throughout high school, college, and a little bit post-grad was hormones and gut issues. So I'm very passionate about 
both of those. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But is that a good starting place for like just anyone in general to like understand what's going on? I think that gut health, I think a lot of people don't have good gut health, even if they are not experiencing really extreme symptoms Mm -hmm. or I often see that people think something is normal when in reality it's not. Um, So I think that gut health is something that a lot of people would benefit from working on. The reason I said that was because you said um, earlier that most people don't really diversify their food. Mm. And I think having a variety of things that your body can break down is the best thing for anyone to do. Yeah, definitely. We don't have a a very diverse amount of food coming in and specifically prebiotics. So like Mm. a variety of fruits, vegetables, and different fibers, that's what fuels the good bacteria that are already present in the gut. So it's like we kill off a lot of the good bacteria with the antibiotics. We're not fueling the good bacteria that are already there. Um, Mm. So yeah, I bet a lot of Americans, if they did some testing, they would see that they are lacking a lot of diversity in their gut microbiome. So what are your personal thoughts on how society deals with different types of diets being promoted? Yeah. um, I bet that's frustrating. (laughs) It is frustrating. It's really, well, it's really hard with social media these days. Um, People's attention spans are very short. Hey, mine included, like no judgment. (laughs) Our attention spans are short. Um, we want, I feel like people actually want nutrition to be more complicated than it is in Mm -hmm. a sense. Like they want there to be these five superfoods they need to eat every day. They want there to be this formula, um, that is just going to like cause them to drop weight, like crazy. They want a quick fix and none of those things are based in reality. Like that's just not the case. Um, the diet sometimes is not like, it's not this sexy thing where mm-hmm. you need to make like this shake every morning that has these five superfoods and it's super like mysterious and fun. <laughs> it, it may yeah. not be that way. Yeah. Um, but that's what catches people's attention is a TikTok where someone's like, include this food every day to drop five pounds in a week. Like that mm-hmm. is going to get a lot of attention and the, the more reasonable and actually helpful things may not get people's attention. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very hard to be competing against TikToks and Instagram <laughs> posts and things. Yeah, but yeah. I, I feel very passionately about like just staying true to what I believe and I am active on social media, but I, I'm like, I refuse to, to do something that is just clickbait, um, in order to get more followers. I would rather have 5,000 followers that I have than 300,000 because I'm promoting something that I don't actually believe in. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's very hard to overcome what society is telling us and like what you see on social media but and I think that that also plays a role in like the relationship to food as well yeah yeah definitely tell me the story which led you to plate and canvas which I love that name first of all (laughs) it's such a cool name uh what does that mean to you how did you get there yeah so it goes back to like my own personal experience and my own health journey Um, I've always really loved art. I actually considered majoring in art in college. Um, so art has always been like very important to me. And I think expression is very important to anyone. 
Um, and when I was dealing with health issues, it was a very dark time in my life. I was dealing with depression. Um, and I pictured it almost as this like very dark block canvas and it is a long process, but as I, as I healed, as I learned about functional medicine, as I implemented those principles in my own life, as I changed my diet, um, changed my relationship with food, it felt like I was putting these bright splashes of paint onto this Mm. really dark canvas and day to day, I may not, I may not have seen these like huge dramatic changes, but over the months and over the years, I got to look at this like new visual of my life. It was very bright and vibrant and my relationships with people changed. I was able to be more present with people. I was able to love people more. Um, and, and my, my life changed. It wasn't my health that changed. It was my life that changed. Mm. And so I, I just saw that in a, in almost like a, a painting going from this like very dull canvas and very slowly becoming like this very bright and beautiful um, canvas instead. Rounding out the Recover series was an episode about CBD. Substances related to cannabis have become more common and mainstream in recent years, so I thought it would be interesting to break down how certain information reaches consumers based on what research is available. Like most things related to recovery, the effectiveness of how well something works can sometimes get lost in translation due to the trendy market items like CBD can find themselves in. I felt it important to talk about developing fields in research like cannabis to showcase how data is collected to make certain claims about their potential benefits. As you will hear in Kristen's clip, her work with CBD was the perfect item to use and dive into how research is interpreted and processed to consumers. Because when it comes to choosing the best recovery options for ourselves, it really matters how we choose to talk about what is true and what needs more testing. Context matters. As Kristen goes on to explain, an important aspect of her research development is collaborating with other professionals in adjacent fields to provide a wider range of data in support of a more holistic approach with alternative remedies such as cannabis. There's something I really like about you is that you are, it depends research. That's what I kind of call them. Whenever you ask someone like you and you say, it depends. And I love that answer because I think that's more accurate to what uh, someone's trying to ask because there's just so many nuances to to research. And so a lot of those things come into consideration. You know, people are skeptical because they're like, well, how do I know how much to use? Mm -hmm. How do I know what's a good product? Um, how do I know it's going to help me for what I need? What if I have adverse reactions? And a lot of my responses are, these are all valid questions. Mm. And there's probably very few scientists or doctors or researchers that give you definitive answers for that because we're still in anecdotal stages where case studies are coming out, where, you know, we're working more towards randomized control trials. We are still trying to figure out these details clinically CBD has been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects. It's been shown to help reduce chemotherapy symptoms in cancer patients. Those are more definitive things I can say because these are being shown in the literature. However, you know, there's still a lot of research going on for CBD for pain, for mental clarity, relaxation. A lot of those things are 
still in the process because there isn't a specific physiological metric we can define. Mm. You know, so-and-so reported having um, less anxiety-induced feelings. Typically, those studies are, you know, using questionnaires or qualitative approaches through interviews, which, of course, can still be validated. But a lot of the jargon we'll hear is, well, what physiological effect does it have? What specific number or metric can you give me, Kirsten? And I'm like, that's the purpose of research because we need to be able to pin that down or talk about why we can't pin that down. Um, Yeah, that's what I was going to ask because how much of a change happens for it to be so noticeable? Right. So this is the it it depends cloud. Okay. So for example, clinical studies that have been done in, in rats or mice you know, and then they go into in vitro studies in humans. A lot of times what we see or what I've, what I've interpreted from what I've read is, you know, rats had a significant reduction in anxiety when given 600 milligrams of CBD, which is great. Cause if I'm reading that study and I'm trying to tell somebody that it could potentially help with their anxiety, that's great. Mm-hmm. 600 milligrams is not a normal dose that a stranger off the streets going to pick up a bottle and say, oh, I'm going to take this. Most bottles, for example, if you're doing a tincture or an oil, mm-hmm. there'll be 750 milligrams in there. You are not going to take 600 milligrams in one dose. <laughs> no. um, you know, just because and so the, the, the concept of contextualization is so important here, mm, yeah. um, which is why I'm loving, at least from what I've seen on LinkedIn, is there is a lot more, there are more physicians that are open to learning more about the cannabinoid system, learning more about how can we prescribe or recommend dosages to people, because it's not a one size fits all, um, which I feel I have a good relatability to because in the fitness or human performance industry, just because I prescribe you hit workouts three days a week for 75 minutes total doesn't mean it's going to work for Joe's mom who aerobically walks every week. Mm -hmm. Like I have to be able to provide personalization. What are you looking for? What are your goals? And I have to drive that down the CBD route. Mm -hmm. Um, So an exciting thing for the research is, okay, these are the few things we can take from rat studies. These are the few things we can take from clinically supported um, effects that CBD has on these populations. And we're going to have to kind of include this for our methodology because us going into the humans for performance research area with CBD, it is like an open field. Mm -hmm. We got to put stuff down on paper. We're going to try things. Who knows if they're going to work or not, or if they're going to provide actual therapeutic support. We don't know. Are we using a topical are we using an ingestible? Are mm. we using a vape? There's so much opportunity to be able to find something, whatever that may be. So the take home there, you know, when I talk to people about this is, okay, Kristen, but physiologically, what is this going to do for my athlete? Which, which at the end of the day, of course, a coach is going to want to give their athlete something, especially if it's going to potentially enhance recovery. They need to know why they need to know what it's going to do. Um, and so that's where we see this ambiguous thing right now is we know athletes are using cannabis. We know athletes are using CBD, but to what extent, what dosage, what is it doing? Are they doing it even though they know they're going to get drug tested? What does that look like? We have no idea. 
So physiologically, we've got a lot of work to do. Do you, you being a researcher, because <clears throat> I feel like I'm gonna take that a little bit of kind of how I try to communicate things with my clients is that I try to always introduce, look, there is an effect. There's positive research on this. Does it work for you? We have to try because you have to gradually introduce these things right. and being able to communicate that with people is important because then you have people who swear by it, but it could have just helped them more or there's just so many variables to that, right? Do you find that other researchers have that same mentality as you where it's like, I know that this is the research and then the application in real life and what are people going to do is a separate conversation? Um, I haven't. Oh, really? So cannabis industry, how we talked about it's booming. Yeah. There isn't a person that has an MD or PhD in cannabis yet. I hope that becomes a program, but the rapid growth of this field is requiring all of us to come from an interdisciplinary approach. Mm. So pharmacists, uh, physicians that are going towards holistic medicine, uh, chiropractors, physical therapists, um, athletic trainers are all building upon like their CBD and cannabis knowledge. So we're kind of having to navigate and kind of shape wow. what we want it to be. So I, I've conversed with a few individuals that are kind of going towards this cannabis research, CBD research that kind of have my background, but it's kind of not a common thing from, wow. from what I've connected with so far. Um, wow. Because not much has really been done on it. So okay. I, that side job that I've continued to have, I mm -hmm. just was thinking, wow, the more I can learn about this, I can bring this into what I do. Because yeah. over time, as I was, you know, researching and writing for NanoCraft clinically, what it's shown for this and that and X, Y, and Z, I was like, there's nothing on human and sport performance. <laughs> I have all of that background in human and sport performance, and I've just grown to love holistic medicine. What if somehow I can combine this into what I do for school? And I can mm -hmm. contribute to this body of literature that we know they're using it, but we don't have anything to, to show on paper what it's doing to people yet. Yeah. And so for some reason, that was just the light bulb of, okay, well, I need to keep connecting with people in different fields. I need to learn about their background and what their perceptions are with mm. this, because we're going to have to lock arms and create this body of literature and create, you know, put stuff out there because we don't have a necessary foundation yet. So professionals, whether they're in a, a sports psychology base, they're coming from a pharmaceutical background, or they're coming from a more, you know, human performance research background like myself, we're going to have to have numerous tools in our belt about cannabis. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. I did not know that. That's pretty cool. Interesting. I might be going, getting a little bit ahead of myself, but because of the research, there's a lot of different types of products. And so that can kind of, uh, can be a positive and negative, I think. So does the type of product that CBD is in, does that determine its effect? Potentially. So okay. let's say we go into a pastry or bakery shop. Yeah. We go in with the intention knowing, oh, they're going to have bread, they're going to have cake, they're going to have cookies. I'm going to want what I want when I see it. Mm -hmm. So we go in and we get a cookie and it looks so good and we taste it and we're like, oh, it was okay. But then our friend got the same cookie and they thought it tasted so much better. Mm -hmm. um, but then we try the bread next time we have a different experience. Yeah. So because cannabis and CBD, well, 
CBD isn't federally regulated yet. Okay. We have companies that can put one drop of CBD oil in a container with oh. a 99% sunflower oil, and they can call it CBD and charge you $70. Other companies may have 50% CBD, 50% MC2 oil. They can call it CBD oil, and they can charge you 100 bucks Because there is such wow. a lack of CBD education at the consumer level, People don't know how to navigate what's a good product. Mm-hmm. People don't know how to navigate what am I supposed to look for in CBD? What type of product do I take? They don't know how long it takes to ingest. They don't know the metabolic effects. And so that's why I, I've really liked this opportunity to share what are things you should look for. Um, you know, if you're taking an oral dosage, use it sublingually. It'll get in your system faster because it'll go through your bloodstream. Uh, If you want to take an edible, it may take anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. Um, And even when I share this with friends or family, or if somebody sends me an email asking about this stuff, they're Mm -hmm. like, okay, great. I didn't know. And I'm like, this is exactly why I don't want to leave this space. Because Mm -hmm. if I can share this information, I hope it goes through the line. I hope you tell somebody, I hope you say, oh, I took this specific amount because my physician recommended it. And I feel the effects about in two hours. Mm-hmm. So you leave that pastry shop and you may have got something really great. You may have searched on Amazon for CBD and then maybe it's not so great. Mm-hmm. So it's really a rat's race until we get federal regulation for CBD. I do think companies will fall to the wayside once we do mm-hmm. get federal regulation because they weren't doing quality of assurance checks, COAs yeah. uh, or QOAs. Certificates of analysis probably aren't being done, which also just shows uh, laboratory testing of what's in their products, what percentages, does it pass this regulation, X, Y, and Z. The companies that are doing that will be good when it comes to things being federally approved because they're being transparent with their consumers. They're also showing specifically what is in their product and the companies that are dipping people or not not doing all of this background work to ensure their products are safe are going to dissipate. You shared a quote in one of your um, writing where it was depth over data, souls over stats. I love that quote. I have never heard oh, that. And, and I thought that was so true because um, that might like what I want you to kind of speak on is in a world full of information and then just the time we're in right now where information it's, there's a good and bad thing to it because it's just, it's all over the place. And how do, how do you incorporate that being a researcher? Yeah. So I, 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 I think I got depth, depth over data, soul over stats from a J, from Jay Shetty. I think like okay. a monk, I, I, I can't pin it down exactly, but I, I read it. And I was like, that perfectly describes me because that kind of goes back to when we, when we first got on here that there are things I enjoy in life and those happen to be my occupations. But at the end of the day, it's not who I am. Those are Mm -hmm. things I enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so I think the depth that I can provide to data, for example, is so much more enriching for me as a practitioner that I can apply that to someone. And soul over stats is at the end of the day, like we're all human. And if I can provide you what these stats say and then how can we translate that to you and you specifically is a really important skill that I think as humans whatever profession we're in is so so valuable because 
it's a humanistic thing. And as all this AI comes out and all of this data, like you're saying, we're missing the emotion. We're missing the genuineness. We're missing the authenticity of the benefit of connection and communication Mm -hmm. to other people. Um, And the opportunities that I've got to connect with different companies and be interviewed and share the holistic sides of me on paper, like I'm an academic and researcher. I think it's so important that I ebb and flow just like what I do in my career. Um, mm-hmm. If I was if I was 100% sure. on all the time in every aspect of my life, I would have burnt out five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Which Oof. I did. I did. Because uh, when I was bodybuilding, I was hardcore. Yeah. Hardcore 24-7. And if you would have told me to sit down for 60 seconds and not do something, I would have walked out. Yeah. Because I couldn't. I needed distraction. I needed things. I needed to do something at all times. That, that busyness uh, pill that is like influenced in our society is so detrimental. So I'll yeah. say that sometimes when people are like, okay, person, that's a little out <laughs> that's, no. that's the emphasis and steroids I want you to put on getting to do things every day if yeah. we get the chance. Like, what is it you like to do? Do that. Do that at least once every day. Yeah. Whatever that may be. When starting the Kilos Project, I knew the podcast was always going to be the sounding board to which I would bring context into how we think about our lives. I wanted to make sure I grounded all of the concepts we highlight surrounding health and wellness with intent, something I mentioned at the start of this episode. I think by shifting our mindset inward in a way that challenges our personal experiences really exposes the blind spots we may or may not have known were present. It only takes one person to ask a question in a particular way to make you see a different perspective, and not necessarily to change your mind, but to expand your capacity for knowledge, and in a more emotional context, increase your grace for understanding. Intent is the focus we need to channel for success in whatever efforts we embark on. And when it comes to health, it's the practice we may need to advocate for more in our recovery. If you look at any healing custom, both traditional and unconventional, they all require a level of belief, commitment, and respect. In many cases, that type of intent takes the form of a ritual. And what is a ritual but repetitive behavior in hopes of a specific outcome? We all do it from morning routines and bedtime regimens to preparations before any competition and performance, from prayer and meditation to procedural operations and administrating therapies, we first must set a foundation to how we will move forward. Think of a ritual in a psychological format. It's a term used by a person to neutralize anxiety, or in other words, worries about a future outcome. While first impressions of this perspective can be disregarded, as wishful thinking, it's also not unhelpful. The placebo effect has a stronger influence than we care to admit. And that's not to say all it takes is positive thinking and that we'll be healed from all of our ailments in doing so. It just means setting a clear path to how you want to experience your journey. Our bodies go through a lot, and it deserves more than what we remember to give it. I will say, yes, it is challenging to change existing habits or rearrange our priorities to live healthier lives for so many reasons. The biggest leap for change is really understanding that. 
Something is better than nothing. But also, don't limit your capability to that way of thinking either. Be honest with your intent. It's a minefield trying to get well in any way. But you have to keep trying where and when you can. That is what this series is meant to provide. Personal accounts, actionable practices, and evolving data of insight to learn from and grow. All of this information can coexist if our intent is to problem solve. So again, in a world of access to infinite information with just one click away, my intent is not to have answers for the problems we're faced with, but to provide the experiences that lead to the options we have access to. Going forward, I hope the essence of that sentiment is shared and understood as a valuable perspective to consider when discussing important issues in our lives. With that being said, each of the guests you heard were in the order of how their episodes were released. Breathwork with Shireen Youssef, Functional Range Conditioning with Nathan Barbosa, Registered Dietitian with Taylor Stolt, CBD with Kristen Thornhill. For more in-depth conversations, follow each of their perspective episodes. Until next time, this is where I leave you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of This Undefined. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Share the voice. And if you want more content to explore, as well as follow other projects we're working on, go to the website at www.thekilosproject.com and follow us on Instagram at The Kilos Project. Till next time, train, recover, create.